Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Today, globalization faces the crisis of its own success. The international movement of goods, money, communications, and ideas have changed the world since even before the 12th century. As a result, today, the context of globalization has changed. Where once driven individuals could change the world, today the very complexity of the world that globalization has created means that it can no longer exist in an economic vacuum, free from the drag of domestic politics, economics, and geopolitics. But to fully understand what we might need to do, we have to first understand how we got here. That's the story that my guest Jeffrey Garten tells in his new book, From Silk to Silicon, looking at 10 people who have single-handedly changed the world over 800 years. It's a kind of biography of globalization. Jeffrey Garten is the emeritus dean of the Yale School of Management, where he was previously dean from 1995 to 2005. He also teaches courses on the global economy at the Yale School of Management. He was undersecretary of commerce for international trade in the Clinton administration, and before that, a managing director of the Blackstone Group and Lehman Brothers. His articles have appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, Foreign Affairs, and the Harvard Business Review. He's the author of five previous books on global economics and politics, and it is my pleasure to welcome Jeffrey Garten here to talk about From Silk to Silicon, the story of globalization through 10 extraordinary lives. Jeffrey Garten, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a real pleasure. It's great to have you here. I want to talk about this idea of of these 10 stories and individuals as a way to better understand how globalization has come to be, how it's changed the world. Well, you know, I wanted to write about globalization and do it in a way that was more engaging than, let's say, talking about policies or maybe doing a case study of a company that was very global or an industry that was very global um, or even looking at some of the abstract forces that make globalization real I mean for example you know environmental degradation or the problem of uh, of refugees today all of these are global issues and 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 sort of illustrate some aspect of globalization but I thought it would be interesting to look at it through the lives of, of individual people who did something really extraordinary to make the world smaller and more connected and one of the things that you point out about these people, and we'll talk about who these 10 are, is that if if these people hadn't existed, perhaps somebody else might have done the same thing, that their genius was capturing the essence of a moment and realizing what could po- what could be possible. That's right. You know, I wrote about these 10 people with with no hypothesis about what they might have in common. And after I, after I had written the ten chapters, and I, I, I must have read them over and over again, almost for a period of six months, trying to trying to come up with now what you know, what can I say about all of them? And this issue, and it's not a new issue, but this issue of sort of the influence of the human being versus the historical circumstances in which he or she lived kept coming back. And one of the things I noticed was that 
each of these people sort of caught a wave. The way I put it in the book is, to use another another sort of metaphor, they really didn't change the course of history. They didn't really bend the river of history so much as they made the water go faster. Um, that they they had exquisite timing, and it's not necessarily because they knew they had exquisite timing. It just could have been the luck of the draw. But they had it, and they were able to take advantage of the circumstances. And in many cases, I felt that the circumstances were so ripe for something big to happen and in, in something almost uh, uh, dis- discontinuous uh, that if they hadn't done it, uh, somebody else would have. Maybe maybe it would have taken a few more years, but um, they just were the beneficiaries of a certain set of circumstances. And one of the things I noticed was that there actually was some commonality to those circumstances themselves. That they, these were times when all the rules seemed to have been suspended or broken. And when the, the, the sort of the tectonic plates of history were shifting very dramatically. So it was almost a period of chaos in every case that somebody took it, was, a, was able to take advantage of that and do something that hadn't been done before. Something really big. As you look at the arc of these, starting as you do with with Genghis Khan back in the the 12th century and going to uh, Andy Grove and and Deng Xiaoping in the 20th century, did it become increasingly more difficult for individuals to exert the kind of influence that you're talking about? You know, I don't think so. Um, I think that... There is a role for individuals in almost any situation, no matter how complex. And I think your your question is a wonderful question because I wrestled with it in looking ahead into the future and asking myself, have I written about 10 people, the likes of which will never happen again because we're living now, you know, amidst so much complexity that it takes much more than an individual to really move the ball in a spectacular way. And I concluded, you know, um, no matter what the situation, somebody has to be out front. Somebody has to be the, the embodiment of the effort. Someone has to um, kind of encapsulate the, the, the resilience that is necessary to try and try and try again, because in none of the cases that I wrote about uh, was it an easy task to to do what these guys did. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I'm I'm here at Yale in a management school, and of course we teach you know about the value of teamwork and the fact that an imperial kind of leader is not is generally not not a good kind. Um, but you can be a team player or you can, let's say, harness the power of a team and you don't have to be obnoxiously arrogant uh, and self-serving to still be 
the clear leader. So, so I think I, I, I think that your premise that somehow it got harder. Uh, I, I don't feel that. One of the examples of what you're talking about is is John D. Rockefeller, who was you know powerful as an individual, but very much relied on on a team of people to accomplish what he did. Absolutely. I mean, I think you know if if you didn't know much about him. Um, you probably would have thought that this was a ruthless, arrogant uh, person who uh, really didn't understand anything other than getting his own way. Um, and yet, you know, he built a global company from scratch. Some people, some people say the first really sophisticated global company. Um, he he basically dominated a whole global industry and this was a man who i don't think he worked 8 hours a day i mean he was he would take naps he was a very, he was a very um warm family man um he had a lot of interests actually a lot of interests outside of his work he delegated he had very very good people around him in fact when he, when he, he, he built what was called Standard Oil by acquiring other companies. And one of his criteria was which companies have the best people, which companies have the people that I can surround myself with. Um, so it was a team effort. It was a huge team effort. In fact, he didn't even want to make decisions unless they were by consensus. Um, and and uh, uh, so... But he still, without question, he was the leader. You know, he 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 may have been a, a superb sort of business politician among his own people, but he was the leader, and he was the one who determined the direction. Looking at the, at the totality of these ten, were they? Can can you classify them as people of ideas or people of action? Well, frankly. You know, I picked 10, as you said, over 800 years. I had to have some criteria because I wanted the 10 to really hold up. I wanted people to say, well, why didn't you pick so-and-so? And I would have a reason. So, so one of my major criteria was that uh, they had to be both men of ideas and action. That is, every one of the people I wrote about rolled up their sleeves and, and implemented what they were thinking. Uh, so so I, I didn't have any scientists. I didn't have, um, you know, great philosophers. You, you, you wouldn't, I didn't pick, for example, Adam Smith, mm -hmm. who obviously had a huge influence in terms of people's thinking around the world. Um, uh, because everybody I had were people of action, but almost by definition, because of what what they did, they also had a, a big idea. They were also very single-minded in the execution of that idea. Yes, that was one of my conclusions. And I must say, I would never would have thought of that if I hadn't written the thing the way I did, and then sort of looked at these people and kept asking myself, what does it mean? Uh, you know, what do they have in common? So one of the, the, the way I describe it is that, you know, there's a, um, a philosopher named Isaiah Berlin who um, classified people into 
two categories. He called them hedgehogs, which were people who were very stubborn, had one idea, but they pursued that idea, um, you know, to, 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 that's all they did. And they, they were very deep. And he, he, he contrasted that to foxes, who were people who do a lot of different things. And it isn't a, for him, it wasn't a value judgment so much as just saying people come in these two varieties. Um, and what I noticed is all the 10 that I wrote about were hedgehogs. In fact, I could trace the, their, their, sort of their, their major idea, their only idea, actually, from the time when they were quite young. I say young, sometimes in their teens, but, but definitely you know, in their 20s. Um, and uh, they had this idea and they kept pursuing it and pursuing it. And it was the, what, 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 I didn't use this word in the book, but it came to me afterwards. They were sort of pathologically obsessive. Um, and I concluded it, it accounted for the fact that they could fail over and over and continue um, because they had nothing else. It wasn't like, let's, let's take a contemporary, let's take Elon Musk, who has several really big projects. If one doesn't work, he can go to the other. If his SpaceX somehow flames out, he's got you know, other big transportation projects. But the people that I wrote about, they only had one thing. Um, and I'm, I'm quite convinced it accounted for their resilience and for the way that they could accept failure or humiliation and just keep going. It also speaks to the way that the man and the times and the idea came together at certain points because they had this one idea, they kept putting them forth, and as you say, even in the face of of repeated failure sometimes, until the idea either took hold or the the historical moment was right for that idea. That's right. And in, in, in some cases, they pushed an idea whose time had not come, but they kept pushing it their entire lives. And, it, you know, and, and suddenly the circumstances changed and they had the, they not only had the idea, but they had really thought it through. Jean Monet, one of the 10 you profile, is perhaps the penultimate example of that. Yeah. And it's a great example because, in, you know, it. Well, what I tried to do with each of these 10 is I picked people who changed the world in the times that they lived, but continue, continue to change it. That is what they did was so powerful that we're living with it today. And so the person that you just mentioned, Jean Monnet, um, is a perfect example of that. Here was somebody who from his early 20s, uh, his early 20s in the, let's say, around the, the, you know, the 1920s, had an idea that the European countries really ought to get together. They ought to merge in some ways because they were just too small individually to compete in the world that was emerging. And in addition, they kept going to war with each other. Now, there were no takers for this. And in fact, he had this idea and the Second World War broke out. But at the end of the Second World War, when Europe was on its back, virtually everything bombed out, 
he had an idea about putting all of the coal and steel that came from Germany and France into one organization that itself would have sovereign authority. That is, he would take those resources and put them under the direction of, of an organization that was not a country. And uh, it was, it's, you know, it would have seemed very, very far-fetched, except it was a recipe for two countries never going to war again. And four other countries signed on, and that was the European coal and steel community, early 50s. That quickly morphed into the European common market, which morphed into the European Union um, with its own, with the currency of the euro. And he had this idea for a long, long time, but it took World War II and the decimation afterwards for it to gel. And then it became, in my view, the single biggest advance in international relations since the, since the um, advent of the nation state in the middle 1600s. Now, we can say, you know, the European Union's got a lot of problems, et cetera, et cetera, but this is really the face of globalization. Countries working together in such a close, close way because the big problems of the day simply can't be handled by sovereign states acting alone. Did these ideas individually build on each other? Could, could one have not happened without some of the ones that preceded it? Well, that's a wonderful question. And, uh, I, I, you know, the, the truth is I'm not sure. I think that some of the things that happened had a effect on all the history afterwards. So, so let me give you one or two examples. Um, the second person I wrote about was... Prince Henry the Navigator, a Portuguese prince um, in the 1400s. He was the father of European exploration. He's the person who basically put together the ships and the crews and the, and the uh, nautical uh, instruments um, and got the Portuguese explorers to go down the coast of Africa, the, the west coast of Africa and they rounded the coast of Africa and they found India and China and eventually they came to the New World. So that kind of exploration really was one of the foundations of all the globalization that took place afterwards. I mean, that was a discovery of the world and the, and the, and the linkages. So without that, there never would have been colonialization. Um, you know, without that, there never would have been global communications. So I think that, yes, you know, that was a precursor to virtually everything in history that came afterwards. I write about a guy named Cyrus Field, mm -hmm. who is the person who built the transatlantic cable. Now, the interesting thing is that on the day before the transatlantic cable was actually connected, that is the cable from England and the cable from Newfoundland. Um, the day before, news couldn't travel across the Atlantic Ocean any faster than it had for thousands of years. And in one moment, 
When that cable was joined, we had real-time communications across the Atlantic, and within a couple of years, the entire world was wired. And that became the basis for all global communications, the radio, the telephone, um, you know, the, the, the TV, and ultimately the Internet. The transatlantic cable was, was the fore, forerunner of all of that. So in that respect, you can say everything built on that. You know, especially, I mean, we look at, you know, the world today and the Internet and digitalization. If you go back to where, where, where's the root here, it's really that, that uh, transatlantic cable. So in many cases, I think what you're saying is right. They built on one another. But, you know, history is very, very complex. And I don't want to um, I don't want to overstate how each one was the was the foundation for everything that came after. Um, but I do think they're connected. To what extent was there pushback to any of these historically? And can that tell us anything about the degree to which globalization is under siege today? Great question. That's a great question. Uh, I would I would take let me give you an example of another person that I wrote about. Let's take Margaret Thatcher. So Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister of England at the very end of the 1970s. She was incidentally the first female Prime Minister, first female in, in that kind of position in any major Western country. Actually probably in any major country anywhere. Um, but that's really beside the point. I mean, she, um, she, she, she came to power at a time when socialist forces, and I mean government intervention in economies, had been gathering force since the Russian Revolution. And, you know, we had the Russian Revolution, we had the Depression, we had World War II, and uh, it's hard to imagine now, but basically governments were very, very, they were, they were intervening in economies in very heavy-handed ways. And in England, the economy basically came to a halt. Not only did the garbage stop being picked up, but, but people couldn't even be buried. It was just horrible. She became prime minister and she basically smashed the whole socialist edifice. She broke the unions. She privatized the state-owned companies. Most of Britain's companies were actually owned by the government. She deregulated everything in sight. She um, lowered tariffs so, so there'd be free trade. I basically associate her with a new era of laissez-faire. But in the process of doing that, she also created a lot of the things that we see today. Uh, a, 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 a growth in poverty, a huge wedge between the wealthy and the rest of the country, um, a, a breakdown in lots of social services. In other words, she tried to make the market the governor of everything, and uh, you know it, it, it created a lot of problems. Now, every, every one of those problems um, created a backlash. And, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, well, can this shed some light on today? Well, you know, 
I would say that she created every every big issue that we're talking about today, even in the campaign, um, was 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 a result of some of the things that she did. And we didn't have answers then, and we don't have really good answers now. Um, and I would say that uh, what she showed is that globalization can move in fits and starts. And it's very possible that we are in a period now where at least some aspects of globalization are either going to slow or maybe even go into reverse. For example, trade. Trade around the world has really slowed down. Global capital flows since the financial crisis of 2008, they have really slowed down. We know, we see the problems of immigration. But on the other hand, the digital revolution has really increased. The way that information is moving across borders is, is soaring. So it's not a clear picture. Um, but, you know, one of the conclusions I have from this book is that globalization is actually, the, the, the history of globalization is the history of mankind and vice versa. 60,000 years ago, a couple of families in Africa stood up and walked out. They were looking for more food. They were looking for better security. And so the, the narrative of our civilization is to become smaller and more interconnected. And I don't believe that anything that is happening now is going to stop that trend. It may temporarily slow it. We may do some swerving, but ask me, you know, what is the what is the prognosis for 20 years from now? And I'd say that the trajectory of globalization is going to be straight up. And finally, did John D. Rockefeller and more recently Bill Gates understand something fundamental in tying globalization in Rockefeller's case to, to the oil industry and in Gates's case to, to computers and technology with respect to tying philanthropy to it? Well, that's a good that's a that's a good question. You know, I was surprised myself. I didn't know much about Rockefeller when I started researching, and uh, one of the conclusions I reached is that actually, if you ask what has been his contribution to history, yes, he created the global petroleum industry, but actually, he also created global philanthropy, um, and he did it in a very businesslike way. If you look at the Rockefeller Foundation, it was started as a global as 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 a global um, uh, institution. That is, he was the first one to say issues of food or issues of health are global, and I, John Rockefeller, are going to create an institution that's going to deal with these things all over the world. And one of the things that that foundation did was, you know, it really led the Green Revolution. He created something called Rockefeller University, which probably most people are not familiar with. Uh, I happen to live near New York, so I, I know about it. But from the very beginning, Rockefeller University was a medical institution that did research, global medical research. He brought to this institution the best scientists and doctors from around the world right from the first day. And the, the, the research 
agenda was global from right from the start. And also the the method of how these organizations were run would not would you know they weren't it wasn't soft management like you find in lots of philanthropies. This was really you know whether it was budgets, whether it was the way they raised money, whether it was the their accountability, it 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 looked like Standard Oil. And you you mentioned Bill Gates, and I think you know I didn't put Gates in the book um, because my end point was the end of the 20th century, and. Uh, I didn't think that Gates, in terms of his computer personality, measured up to the other people I wrote about. But if I were, if I had extended this, let's say, to the mid 21st century, I think that what Gates is doing in the Gates Foundation is going to be totally transformative. And it does, it does parallel a lot what Rockefeller did in bringing new techniques to global philanthropy. And, and I think that global philanthropy is going to be very, very key to the future of globalization. Jeffrey Garten, his book is From Silk to Silicon, the story of globalization through 10 extraordinary lives. Jeffrey, I thank you so much for spending time with us. And thank you. It was a very interesting discussion. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.